This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is for the passionate Seahawks fans. The ones who care about scheme more than hot takes. The, the, the ones who want X's and O's and not talking heads. From the eye in the sky. This is Seattle Overload. It's Seattle Overload. With your hosts, Matty F. Brown, Griffin Sturgeon, and Ty Dane Gonzalez. Let's go. Welcome to the Seattle Overload podcast where Griffin and I are going to dive in to where the Seahawks are at now, given Griff's had a, a bit of a hiatus from the pod. And then we're going to look at the offense and how the offense has started hot in games, had a decent opening script, not just visually or, you know, from a schematic observation standpoint, but also from the data as well. And then when it gets to the second, the third, the fourth quarter, the third downs, it goes to crap. So we've got some good data to look at. We've also got some uh, kind of explanations why we think that happens along with the how. And we might be able to get to some tape too. But Griff, maybe yeah. you're to blame for this. The Seahawks have lost four games in a row. Last time we podcasted, I think they've yeah. lost three games. It was the, it was, I wasn't able to do the Ravens game recap i don't think I this think is all going... your fault and it's like one the question on everyone's lips is when are you going to apologize for this i'm sorry for the seahawks i'm sorry for um ceasing my dm conversation with Pete carroll and not giving him all the good pointers um, oh, right yeah you you didn't just stop coming on the, the podcasting with me <laughs> you also yeah. stopped uh giving Pete Carroll your your uh my tips and pointers <laughs> yeah damn it yeah yeah man they've lost four games in a row that's not good it's the first time in Pete Carroll Seahawks history he is the last remaining coach since 2010 to have not lost four in a row until just now 
every other team has lost four games in a row at some point since 2010 to give us some perspective. And it's in a season in which they're only one game below 500 too. Yikes. So, so have your feelings changed on the team, Griff, since, since this losing streak? Because I know you had some reservations around the team. We both did. But, I, I mean, you, you kind of mentioned Pete Carroll. I've seen your, your tweets on him. Yeah, where, where are you at? Yeah. Is there anything which has made you, you reconsider some stuff? Well, I mean, the last time we spoke, they were 6-3, and three, and I had some confidence going into the Ravens game that maybe most people didn't. I actually thought of the better teams they were going to face on the, the schedule. I thought they actually matched up with the Ravens better than some of these other teams and that we saw how that game went. They got destroyed. Um, there maybe are some caveats there in the sense that the Seahawks, for whatever reason, and Mookie Alexander, the guy who runs field goals, great guy, has pointed out, the Seahawks are very bad on grass um, for whatever reason. And so, we're just, so we're blaming playing surfaces. No, 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 no. But it was um, – they, 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 they were just bad that game. And nothing in that game went – how it should have gone, even if they should have lost. Like there are things, and I'm not going to go too far into that, but there are things like the Ravens leading up to that point in that in that game, uh, prior to that game rather, that they did poorly. And there, and some of those things, like you know, like buckets, like say under center run defense, particularly against zone. The Seahawks prior to that point actually had good under center run zone offense. And so I thought, well, if, if anything, they should at least win that battle, right? So I was looking for things like that. I was looking at the fact that Lamar Jackson does poor against the blitz at prior to that game. I was looking at the Geno prior to that game, especially on early downs was like fifth in the league or fourth in the league and success rate against the blitz. So these, those buckets should go in Seattle's favor, right? They got destroyed in every single one of those, well, every single one of those items. So after the Ravens game, I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to throw that game out in, in the sense of how much projectability does that game have moving forward? Because, yeah, they certainly got destroyed in the areas where they should have gotten destroyed, but they've utterly complete team failure. That the things that they're normally good at, um, even against tougher opponents, and things that the Ravens are usually bad at, even though they're the best team in the NFL, there are some things the Ravens aren't good at and still aren't good at. And that game, it was like they were good at everything, and the Seahawks were bad at everything. So I was going out for the Ravens game. I was like, all right, whatever, we're moving on. And then what was it, the 49ers game? Was it the first 49ers game on Thursday night? Or no, it was the Rams game. Yeah, it was the Rams game first, yeah. Um, So the Rams game happened, and they should have just won that game. I mean, they should have. If Gino doesn't get hurt, they win, make another field goal. Uh-huh. Um, I really wasn't that impressed about that other than it was just uh, it's really frustrating that they lost results-wise. Process-wise, I really wasn't concerned about what that game signaled. Right. Um, so 49ers bargaining and uh, a lot of bargaining going on right now. Bit of denial. <laughs> sure, maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I wasn't, I wasn't making any excuses for the Ravens game other than just what do you do with that game? It's trying to, like, nothing went, like, it doesn't reflect this team. Like, I don't think in, in any way beyond that it adds another tally in the loss column. That was how I viewed it. And then the 49ers game happens, right? Um, that was the Thursday night game. Correct. And they just get destroyed short week. They're unprepared, bad coaching job, bad, 
bad uh, execution from just about everybody. Yep. And so it's concerning. I'm concerned at that point. Now, granted, the 49ers are better, but I would have liked to have played them tougher. They showed some signs of life in the third quarter. That was the Thanksgiving game. That's right. Um, so it was really frustrating. And then they go and play the uh, uh, the Cowboys. Yep. And the offense, the, the, the offensive line continues to be really bad. Uh, but Gino has a great game. The receivers finally have a great game. They have a great third down game plan. Um, and so everything is, everything is looking kind of, uh, everything. I mean, offense, I'm like, okay, they're back in it. They have signs of life. They kind of figured out their problems with the route details, details a little bit. There was at least improvement over the previous 49ers game. Um, I thought they game plan what the Cowboys did on defense really well, like finding the weak spots and and two man and stuff, especially third down. They just were, everything was working. Um, And the O-line, they gave up a lot of pressure, but I thought the severity of pressure was such that on each time they did give up pressure that Gino can manage it and handle it. Um, And so, but they still lost and the, the defense just wasn't, I think collectively that game against the Cowboys, I mean, Devin Witherspoon got worked a little bit. He just did. He's a rookie, you know, going up against the best quarterback receiver duo in the league this year and Dak Prescott, CeeDee Lamb. So, like, I can cope through that because it's like, eh, you know, he just got beat, man. He's he's going to be really good. He's been really good already. Um, and then, But then there are other aspects. I mean, the penalties are abysmal. Penalties have to stop. Uh, but then, like, there are some severe problems in the interior of the the coverage. Um, and I don't – I mean, like, the coaching staff needs to coach this better. I don't know why they've regressed in those areas because some of the stuff, it's like the 49ers run a lot of plays that everyone runs. Now, yeah, they dress it up in different ways, but it's not always so super complicated. Sometimes it's just execution versus execution. Why are they – playing the stuff that they're actually have been doing well this year at like very, you know, finite, unique things. And why are they just falling apart? So there's clear some system failure going on throughout the work week, as far as preparation. Pete Carroll mentioned that, like, we got to prepare them better. You know, it's not like we don't work this stuff. Um, Like Jamal giving up that, that huge over route, that game is bizarre because he's never given up that route as a Seahawk before. Um, in that context, uh, he even they were very aggressive to, to matching the final three this game before that snap and after it, Jamal himself included, like Devin Witherspoon's um, uh, pass breakup that he got injured on. Jamal almost makes the play himself. And that's a similar rule, different route, but same rule where he's matching number three. And he's coming all the way from the backside of the play and he almost makes it. So clearly he understands what's going on. And then he just has a for lack of better phrase, a brain fart on that one, trying to play the weak dig. And it's like he's trying to make a play on third and 11 where he thinks the ball is going to go instead of just playing the rule as written up. And, and then he gives and it looks embarrassing. He thinks he can man it. He thinks he can handle it. He by turning a little too late and clearly his long speed isn't there and he should have been more conservative. So, but then there are a, a you know, litany of those things, um, which I'm sure you talked about last week. So I am concerned about the, the coaching of the scheme I think the scheme in and of itself isn't the main problem, but I think there are still some conundrums that Hurt has worked himself into. 
I think the the problem, the, the what are problems with the scheme are revealed when the execution is also not as great. It compounds it. It's kind of how I view it. Um, yeah. So heading into this year, I think um, not to put words in your mouth, but just recalling how we felt about the team to start the season, we expected like a ten and seven. Uh, we might have said eleven and six. Might have even I, I think I said twelve and five. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if, I think you were twelve and five. I think I said eleven and six. And I think we we weren't um, we weren't the exception to that i think a, a lot of the fan base expected a, a at least a kind of a st- stable uh thing with how they kind of were in the they're almost in a mini rebuild but they'd kind of restocked their roster they'd changed things up they'd spent another year of high draft picks uh well with the denver trade as well and they expected a, you know not regression in terms of a record but uh, but kind of reading in between the lines of what you've just said there if it, it sounds like you're saying you feel rather than this being a, it's more Pete Carroll's being let down by his assistant coaches and not necessarily the coordinators, but possibly positional coaches, not to put words in your mouth, but. Uh, I mean, I, I still think Pete is ultimately responsible for, I mean, he's got to coach the coaches. And I, I did tweet at one point, I said how like anytime Pete does step in, where he at least verbalizes to the media that he's going to step in and change something very specific. There is a correlation the following week with whatever that is of improving, like very finitely, like very definitely. Um, um, like this isn't just like, Oh, I wanted like, is there aren't broad generalizations. They're like very specific things that I was referring to and he has improved them. So I think that whatever, whatever, you know, laissez-faire or like salutary neglect that he gives his coaches. I mean, I think it's good that he delegates. I, he has a reputation for meddling for some reason. And I think maybe it's, I mean, maybe he's not meddling enough. Maybe he needs to be more hands-on. Obviously he also hired these guys, right? So he's responsible if they for them if they're not able to not handle being, you know, coached by the head coach, you know? Um, so, I, I mean, yeah, there, there, there could be positional coaches making errors. That, I mean, Tariq Woolen really hasn't improved in zone principles. His his man-up matchup is fine. It's quite good. But, like, he still doesn't get a lot of stuff. And Pete said, like, he, like on that one, the one play that Julian Love gave up, uh, Woolen obviously shouldn't have, have been on the play fake because he wasn't even in the run fake. You can't get play action if you're not, in the, if, if you're not in the, even in the run fit. So why are you biting? Um, so, but like Carl Scott is the cornerback coach as well as the safety coach. I have a very high opinion of Carl Scott. That doesn't mean he's not doing something wrong and during the practice week, not getting the guys ready. But Pete also has to make sure Carl's getting them ready too. And it's just pure speculation from the outside in of where those problems are sourced. Um, but they 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 need they need to get it together. Um, so it's 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 bizarre. The the, the Cowboys game. I don't really think I was worried from, I mean, the Cowboys game to me was Bobby Wagner can't cover anymore. He's a glaring hole. He's a glaring weakness. Devin Witherspoon just got beat in really key situations. And then there was some bad team tackling beyond that. I didn't think there were glaring structural problems. I didn't, I didn't think well, like. Reed Willen had some tough moments, but. 
Yeah, he did. He did. And the penalties too. Yeah. Right. So like I wasn't like sweating that game other than like oh, that just sucks. Uh the results of it. Um and I should say offensively what the Cowboys pose for the Seahawks defense. It isn't structurally, I don't think, too much of a challenge. Like they kind of the way that the Seahawks defense schematically structured, I'd say, is better suited for that cowboy style of offense and how the cowboys look to attack seattle that game than say what the the 49ers do where you know m- multiple tight ends they're putting a tight end into that big b gap bubble at the snap with motion and seattle's kind of sitting in that same front like that and it exposes kind of a structural issue you know i didn't yeah i guess the the cowboys in their game plan exposed many structural issues per se more kind of personnel um issues when it came to, come, comes to the the defense and obviously the offense balled out and it was really unfortunate that gino then got hurt because you didn't see the kind of continuation of that um process and they did actually do some stuff which was notable and to your point about pete carroll you know when he steps in things change well he said that they were going to change stuff they did change stuff for the the positive and then the 49ers drew lock comes in and he does his best but it's not gino it's not peak gino so right yeah agreed and i guess i was more thinking like coverage when i said that when i said structure but you're right the 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 the, the run defense the inherent problems especially the bubble issue and you kind of t- you talked about this early on it just didn't matter because their execution was so good those problems are now the schematic on paper problems Kyle Shanahan will find. And their problems now, I think, because the loss of Uchenna Nwosu is um, significant. And and that's, that's not to say that Nwosu himself is the difference between, you know, what they were before and what he's been after, even though the correlation is really clear. It's more that I think when they were playing well, and I know a lot of people will point to, well, look at the the opposing teams that they were playing. But when they were playing well, I think that while this team does have a lot of talent, where they are weaker on average, there's a few areas where they're weaker than, than where they are strong. But in those areas, they had eclipsed the talent level just enough and enough areas to where all parts of the team, I know this is like wishy-washy language, but all parts of the team could combine to kind of dive delve into that concept of being greater than the sum of your parts. So you can positively reinforce, you can make up for uh, the weakness here, the weakness there. If you're just good enough in certain areas, once you are, once one of those units starts to dip just below that threshold, it can no longer combine and multiply with the other elements of the team to be greater than the sum of your parts. So there's like a domino effect or a cascading effect. So yeah, while Uchenna Nwosu himself is not directly responsible for going from like the first or second ranked offense rush off rush defense by EPA now to like the 20th or whatever they are, I think that it's led to a series of events. They can no longer they, they can no longer accommodate uh he can no longer make up for good but not great play on the interior from the defensive lineman because like we're still talking about like you know, like scheme really matters in run defense, right? The, those weaknesses, the de- interior defensive lineman can only overcome so much um, systemic or schematic weakness. Yeah. That puts a certain amount of stuff, then that puts a little too much stress on Bobby where the 
the jazz music starts to stop with him a little bit, so to speak, where he can only really even defend the run coming directly downhill. He can't work sideline side to sideline to sideline. Then that affects his ability to leverage play action crossers. Then that that affects what he can do there, and then affecting that then limits what Clint Hurt can do, how he wants to rotate the safety to help with the play action, and so that everything starts to shrink you and you get hamstrung and stuff. So. I mean, so like the absence of Nwosu brings Bobby down just below his threshold for the linebacker threshold, and then that causes problems. And then it's like if Jamal starts to regress just a little bit, then that makes Julian Love even more of a problem, et cetera. So like all these things are – I think that when they were doing well, they were thing, – things were – there was a positive feedback loop, and now there's a negative feedback loop. Well, I still think there's a lot of like explicit talent, Woolen, uh, you know, Devin Witherspoon, Brooks – Yes, Quandre Diggs is still a very good safety. While there's still a lot of that, I don't think that there is enough talent in the other areas where we had question marks. Is the pass rush enough? The pass rush is decent, but it's not enough to overcome the other problems. Like we were, there was this question mark, is the pass rush going to be enough? If they had an elite pass rush, a lot of these other things would not be an issue. That's the case of the Cowboys. The Cowboys really get exposed and their pass rush isn't getting home, but they don't have to worry about their weaknesses being exposed because their pass rush gets home at such an absurd rate. The Seahawks can't lean on any of that. They were leaning on being just good enough in just enough areas that includes scheme. But as, as you start to dip below the threshold in these areas, it reveals the, the other, the other parts. So I really think the solution is as far as this year, I mean, you got to find a way to optimize and maximize what you've got. And that's what Pete Carroll defenses always end up doing. Yeah, it can be sinusoidal. They dip below and above, but they do end up finding it. I would really like to see them find it against the Eagles, a good offense. And then, you know, it wouldn't be too surprising if they did it the final three games, given who they're playing, right? Um, not not, not a great, you know, strength of schedule remaining, Good, which is good for them. Um, but then, like in the offseason, getting way ahead of ourselves, you know, you got to get Nwosu back. You have to hope Derek Hall progresses, you know, hopefully upgrade on Taylor, even though it wouldn't be too expensive to bring him back because he's a restricted free agent. I don't know if you want to anyway. Um, you got to upgrade on Bobby. You got to figure out. I mean, I, I mean, I would move Brooks to Mike and then find another will. His keeper, right? Yeah, that too. Um, and then, yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you got to make contract decisions at safety. Um, I'm not necessarily out on Jamal as a player, but you, I mean, even if he played well, like he was earlier and sustained that for the whole year, you're not going to, you're not going to pay him. What's his contract is. Yeah, I, you're don't, gonna... I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze. Um... Right. And like, I mean, the ideal thing, if it were up to me, if you're making purely football decisions and maybe cultural things and like his insane tweets are, you know, enough to want to move on anyway, we don't know how that's viewed internally. We can only guess. Um, but if it was a pure football decision, I would hope I would move Brooks to Mike after this offseason and ask Jamal if he can take a significant pay cut and make him the full-time weak side linebacker. Um, because I know like all the memes are there and stuff, but like he might he's he's your best available option to you. He's gonna be better than a rookie. His box skills are still really impressive. Like how he how he fits in the box when he has a normal alignment is honestly really impressive i don't think contact is too much of an issue especially when the scheme can kind of keep him free and then i think in coverage i mean i think he's a good hook player you know so you know beyond that i don't i don't i don't know 
Um, so, Griff, uh, yeah. talking off-season and moves and acquisitions, was uh, the Leonard Williams trade a mistake in your view? No, because, I mean, you're, you're getting what you paid for in him. I mean, if you just isolate it to, to you know, what you're getting out of him, he's he is playing really well. So I'm I'm pretty ecstatic with him, and I hope they they want to bring him back. Um, so, yeah, you're not underwhelmed with him as a pass rusher. It's more kind of an edge issue in your eyes. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think the I think this is what so their pass rush. If if you look at their their team pressure, if you actually and you look at other things like pass rush grade, like collective grade, which I'm not a fan of, but there is a there is a picture being painted here. The pass rush is okay. It's okay. It's not an overwhelming force. Um, the other yeah. thing is, you know, we connected the pass rush to their inability to defend the checkdown and and shallow routes on deeper drop concepts. I think that was I think that had been mistaken by some as a linebacker problem. Like, oh, they're just bad at covering running backs. Like they have a problem with the skill set of running backs. And that's not the it's just a product of pass rush. They're def- they're still they're actually that that relationship continues to play out. They are defending running backs in coverage well. They're defending the check down well, at least air yard attempts that are under five yards. They're defending screens well. They're like that's not their problem right now. Now they're breaking downfield when last year they did not break downfield. And the year before that, they especially under the Ken Norton Juniors last year, they did not break at the second and third level. And that wasn't because of shifting schematic resources to the second and third level. It was just them playing the hell out of their rules. Well, now they're just busting. Well, and, and you know, I spoke about it yesterday on the tape pod- podcast, but part of the reason Adams is so aggressive at the sticks is because he's kind of he's he's ahead of where the pass rush actually was. He's kind of expecting the pass rush to... Um, move uh you know hurry the quarterback to throw that kind of underneath route and instead purdy has all day to then go and find the the yeah. over route of um debo samuel and then the other thing as well is the 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 other big play one a big play underneath bobby wagner and jamal adams in cover three they're both kind of playing like the pass rush is 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 a problem and they're collapsing on that route in a bad angled way and, yeah. and not playing with the pass rush. So the, the coverage yeah. is complementing the pass rush um, and it's so, causing issues downfield yeah. on top of that. Bobby's been doing this since 2021, man. He's been, so whenever he gets high load, he, he knows what offenses are doing to him. He knows. This is why I'm so confused. He knows what, he knows what they run out of what formations he like, cause, cause he moves for it. He's just, intentionally moving for the lower read 
It's like you you know he knows what's happening to him because he's being reactive to it, but it's like he's voluntarily taking the cheese and giving the quarterback the exact look he wants. I don't understand it. And we saw the weak hook player against some of these high lows of the 49ers run be extremely aggressive, pushing to the strong hash to take yep. to take off. Like Jamal had that one play where, where Devin made the great play. Brooks had a couple of them. Diggs had that one against the Cowboys where he almost forced uh, almost forced an incompletion. Like it's the same play, rinse, repeat. They are attacking the strong hook player. They're attacking Bobby Wagner. The whole defense knows it because the weak hook player is pretty much being like a second strong hook player the way he's pushing so hard. I don't understand why Bobby's doing this. It's it's but he's been doing it since 2021 and it kills them. It's it's no, it is no mystery when Bobby was not on the team in 2022. Their rush four cover three numbers were first in the league, EPA per drop back. And then this year they fall into middle of the pack. It's because of Bobby. Like, I know it sounds so insane to be like Bobby Wagner is why they're bad in cover three, but like the answer is yes, it's because of Bobby. Um, Cody Barton was really good at playing a hook, a cover three hook. Bobby Wagner at 33 years old is not anymore. He, he, so Bobby and KJ Wright wrote the book on what a cover and cam wrote the book on what good cover three hook play looks like in modern football. And then Bobby <laughs> lost his speed and he can't do it anymore. Cause Cody the, mad, the mad thing about that, that play where I caught I underneath. And again, I broke down the tape yesterday on it, but oh, Robbie, Bobby, Robbie, Bobby drops to like seven yards rather than 10 to 12 yards. So he's too, sh he's too shallow. Then the ball's caught underneath, but the way he's converged, he ends up even more upfield on the check down and he's just olays it to the it's just the angles are so bad because his his movement's just not the, like he's not there it's not there dropping into the coverage. It's not there then relating to the receivers who distribute in the pattern. Yeah. And it's not there in the pursuit. So it's just every phase of the, the pass coverage rep is is bad. Right. So and, and and there was a period where he was finding his landmarks better in the middle of the season a little bit. Like he started off really bad and then he kind of found it a little bit. And we're like, oh, okay, like he's back in the saddle. He's playing cover three the way their coach, they used to coach cover three. And then it dipped off again. I'm like, man, I, I think, don't. I think that's, I mean, toil of a season, right? But then also, you know, it's probably, if you had a consistent pass rush, then maybe you have a bit more faith to, to drop back right. and not be so scared about having, you know, this, the angles and making up ground. I don't know. I agree. And so like, the, that's one of the main, one of the best solutions for any defense, any defensive coordinator is to just have absurd talent up front because it erases so much. It, 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 it also shrinks what the offense even tries to do, right? Like the offense won't even try to do things that can hurt you because they don't think they can protect. So it preempts more dangerous concepts. Uh, you know, I mean, that's why Kyle Shanahan doesn't throw the ball a lot. You know, he has the best passing game in the league. He does not throw the ball a lot. He wants to shrink possibilities down and and just make sure that he hits his shots when he does shoot. And yeah. he, he he does. I mean, he doesn't want to expose Brock Purdy to a bunch of drop back because he also doesn't have a good pass protecting O-line either. He doesn't well, want to do – yeah, go I ahead. I spoke about this recently, but you look at the, the old um, Legion of Boom stuff. 
And that defense is, they're not covering everything. Like, it's impossible to cover everything. But when you watch them against, like, a Shanahan team, he could have the perfect beater up there. And you're like, damn, that is nasty. And a lot of the times, the ball doesn't end up getting, to, they don't have time to get it off. Or the quarterback's moved off his spot. Or, you know, the the, the yeah. front alleviates the problems that, or, you know, can be created if you have the time to get it off. Um, right. Right. They're also just straight up terrified of Earl and Sherman's range. Yeah. You know, like some, I, I will say they are quarterbacks. And this is like a, I wonder if Pete Carroll would say the same thing. If you, if you were to freeze the frame right when they're about to load up to, sh to throw the ball over the years, they are trying windows that they never used to even try. Even like, I would argue if you were to isolate the equally well um, covered it's like situations downfield, they, they, they try way more tight window throws now than they did during the, you know, the like more of an understanding of, or, or faith in how like the leverage a defenders playing and like understanding of how right. a, a route's going to drag the deep or right. know, deep, intermediate and, and, to deep window out of the picture as you throw it basically. Right. Yeah. And like, I think we kind of saw that with Tariq Woolen last year, they were just throwing on him because he was a rookie and he's getting all these picks. Well, like they don't really target him downfield the same way anymore. Like they're just afraid of him now. The same look, the same proximity of corner to to receiver. And they're like, I'm not throwing that now. You know what I mean? Um, so honestly, this defense needs one more pass rusher. It needs another Jordan Brooks. And then it needs to figure out the strong safety situation and you'll be fine. Honestly, I think you'll be fine. We've, um, we've said that about the pass rush for so many years. I know, and and they are they are one step better because it reflects it it reflects right like it does reflect they can defend the checkdown now. It um it you would you would love to know man what would Ken Norton Jr. do with this pass rush? With oh, how I was, so was going to ask you about the uh, the coaching uh, aspect because you've you, you talked a lot about the the kind of personnel here and you haven't really question the the dc and or or brought up ken norton jr but here we go so i mean ken norton jr's lows were low right like the but i think the, there there needs to be some qualification to that because when he when the lows were low they weren't a problem of um they were primarily in my opinion they were he was trying to be something completely different and what the prime, what he was primarily trying to achieve worked. It worked tactically, but it didn't work strategically. So, like the first half of 2020, he's being a blitz heavy team. He's blitzing like at the third or fourth highest rate. His pressure numbers when blitzing were great. His sack rate when blitzing was great. The design of the of the blitzes were very good. But when they didn't get home, because you don't have a hundred percent pressure rate when you blitz a good a good pressure is going to be 40 50 percent when the pressure didn't get home they got lit up what that means is they when the pressure when the when the pass rush doesn't get there the corners don't have they don't have the cover skills to to handle that being on an island with with no interior zone defenders to leverage with or whatever so tactically ken had great ideas the first half of 2020 strategically it made no sense for his personnel so what did he do he looked at what did work if you were to isolate what did work overall the first half of 2020 and what did that happen to be rush for cover three first half of 2020 
they were the eighth or they were the eighth ranked, if I remember correctly, rush four cover three defense in 2020, the first half of the, that season. They simply didn't use very much of it. So what did he do in the second half? He increased it by like 33%. They lived in it. And yes, they did get better at it because they weren't playing as good of opponents. But people like to say, well, the defensive turnaround in the second half of 2020 is just related to opponent. And I say, they simply just did the things they were prior, they were already good at. They just did more of it. Like it's they min-max. That's all it was. Um, and so, so, right. So there's that. Then 2021, he. Well, Griff, Griff, hold yeah. on. What are they good at in 2023? What are they good at in 2023? Um, that's why I have the issue because I know, right? They don't, they don't, they're not. I think, see, the thing is, I think, I think Ken would find it. I also think Ken would coach the rules way better. Well, let's see. And that's my problem. It feels like the, the coaching is just. There's a lot of signs that the, the coaching isn't isn't there. Um, I mean, so so Maddie, let's break that down. So l- let's talk like cornerback technique, something very like specific. How do you feel about Tariq Woolen and Devin Witherspoon's and Trey Brown's press technique on the outside and read step technique? Because we're talking oh, they're, about their right? press tech's fine. So like Carl Scott can coach corners, like in pure man situations and matchup, right? And like re, yep. like cover three, like up up the sideline stuff. Yeah. So he's good there. Uh, wh- wh- where where are you seeing coaching problems? Is it like, is it concept recognition? Like, is it is it motion breaking their rules? So like th- that goes on. The the sec uh, the second level run fits. Um, how they handle um, and communicate stuff. Um, like I don't understand why they don't fall back with um th- their alignments in the second level are messed up and they don't fall back with why going back across the formation to like the flex side, um, and then right. I mean it is largely per- and then it's just an overall kind of game plan thing where it feels like they are re- very reactive, not proactive, um. There isn't like a clear thing of hey we're doing this for this and then we do this for this and they're running these this this front the same damn front so often that, the, the... And, and they have ways of changing the picture don't get me wrong like they stunt and they blitz a bit but that kind of comes after they've been gashed it never comes before and they don't really do enough of that i would say like, there isn't enough options there isn't like a plan D and E, there wasn't enough layers and wrinkles off that, and there definitely could be. And then it feels like, why is it take? You know, we're at this point, this last quarter in the season. Why hasn't haven't they fallen into that yet? So they they had their they had their slot blitz, their their yeah. nickel fire zone. Are they using that as much now? I don't and know. and they, they don't really. It, but it's like one thing, and then and then there's yeah. the weak safety pressure. Where you're basically creating bare spacing, right? Bare spacing. Yeah. Um, well, for instance, the the inside backer uh, being sent up the middle to like play duo and get again into bare spacing doesn't happen often. But I don't know it's it's hard to it's hard to um, pinpoint the precise stuff without. Would so? Really... Yeah. So like. When when Ken, when the Ken Norton Jr. defenses had good stretches and they had really good stretches like weeks months 
extent of it. What happened was they had their base stuff where they don't change the picture post-snap and they just play the shit well, out of their rules, right? Well, that's the thing as well and, for me that they they don't have a viable, I, I'd argue they don't have a viable base because of the, there's a real like structural calls. problem against certain looks and their intent on just playing it. And it really reminds me of right. the kind of stubbornness last year. Like, oh, well, we're just going to live in this nickel look uh, because we love to have in the pass rush um, the two, the you know, the two edges off the edge. But you know, running ten snaps of uh, base against the Forty ers most of which came uh, when they really had to stop the run, or, or you know, it's this end of game yeah. situation. So don't get me wrong; they got gashed in that as well against the run, but um, on that one opening play. But it's very rigid to not have a it, and it, and the base approach off the nick with the nickel look, it feels like it lacks the kind of added stuff that Ken had. Um, right. So Ken had his core calls, but then he also was astutely aware of the weaknesses of his core calls because his the supplementary, the supplementary offense could attack um, what they put, the threat they posed. And sometimes he'd be a step ahead of that threat, you know? As he, right. And so like, because those supplementary complementary calls ex are attempting to achieve an express purpose, even if they didn't work because say the execution wasn't good enough or say the, you know, coaching of it wasn't good enough, whatever. And the, it, it did, did, it did work most of the time. The point is, is that he was expressing to, to people that he is consciously aware of what the weak points are because those schemat those complementary and supplementary calls are addressing that very specific weak point. So like when they're in bear, you no longer have an A gap and B gap bubbles, you know, have C gap bubbles. So the call would be to alleviate the C gap bubble very specifically, right? Or he would have, wow, Kyle Shanahan wants to put the 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 outside cornerback in the run fit. So I'm going to invert the coverage so that the safety is buzzing down and the corner is now inverting and playing a cover two shell. And he would do those things. And whether or not it would work isn't even the point. It demonstrates that he's cognizant of what the weak spot is. It just felt and there's like a none more, of that right now. felt like a much more complete system. This feels very incomplete. It feels like like a, a step one of, a, of an idea. And it comes across from the outside looking in as... You know, Pete Carroll in the offseason, uh, as we know he did, he kind of steps in and says and helps out and says, hey, uh, I get we want to run a nickel over front. I get we, we want to do that for the pass rush. How we did it last year didn't work. We need to fix that. We need to correct that. So this is the kind of base layer that we're going to do. Right. We're going to coach the heck out of this. Here's some options off that. But they haven't evolved it from that point. And ultimately, the head coach... Is he really going to hold the defensive coordinator's hand through through that process? I mean, right. There's obviously and like, we don't know, but and like all the things that we do like about Ken Norton Jr., they're not novel to him. Like Pete knows it too. And that's why I'm ultimately, I'm ultimately optimistic about the the long term prospects here and the overall picture because if Ken knows them, Pete knows them. Pete knows what could be done, but you, once you get down a track, you can't you can't completely undo all those tracks that have been laid you have to work on with the schematic momentum you have and i'm sure pete has ideas but you can't just like do everything because it's not you know fantasy land there, there are realities and stuff that we aren't privy to and everything you can't just install this and that and you're like oh i mean i'm sure pete has a million ideas like what would be good 
Um, but it's it's on him to like institute it and and guide Clint that way so that Clint can be self-sufficient. Because I, I thought that like when things were going well, there was a clear first down game plan. There was a second down game plan. And then, you know, third down, there was a clear intent, but it wasn't working. But I was like, okay, that will normalize because it just should. But I really like the process of first down and second down. But then offenses started to find those weak spots. And then there was no counterpunch. Um, and and they, get, they get caught in situations where, like, on second and one, they they show, they just ask to be, you know, attacked in a certain weak point. Like, they don't seem to call um, enough plays where it's like, hey, this fits the situation and the, the, um, the game state and the potential danger of, of what the offensive formation and set poses. There just doesn't seem to be enough of that. Um, anyway. Right. Now... John in the chat, I chat um, obviously with Griff back, less interaction, but John says there also seems to be a culture problem based on Pete Carroll's Seattle sports comments. And Noy Gash says, uh, Pete throwing the players under the bus is rare. He feels the pressure. I didn't really, I mean, I think obviously Pete Carroll feels the pressure. Obviously he's upset. He's lost four games in a row, et cetera, et cetera. I really didn't take that as him throwing guys under the bus. Um, Okay, he rarely does mention players by name if they mess up, but it was very obvious who messed up on both those plays. Um, Greg Olsen highlighted it in the broadcast, and Mike Solk himself in the interview kind of knew who 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 was at fault. So, and as Pete said, those guys know they messed up, and he didn't bash them or go overboard. He just said what happened on the play and how they can improve, and expressed a frustration overall of how people were executing. Um, Griff, I want to know kind of your thoughts on that. But John, in terms of the culture-based issue, I think culturally a challenge that Seattle's experiencing, just one, their highest paid player um, on defense, Jamal Adams, isn't playing very well. He has this off-the-field stuff, which is a bit of a problem. I don't want to pile on individual players, but I think that uh, how that is working out right now has to be a challenge for them, along with you know stuff I heard uh, behind the scenes that, there's a bit of frustration with him in the locker room. That was before the tweets about a lack of accountability and the the stuff where back at LSU with Dave Aranda, he was um, known as a head nodder in meetings and someone who had to kind of live up to this alpha persona. And then in one-on-one settings, you could get through to him, but in the team settings, it was a bit harder. So maybe a challenging character for some people to work with. And then two, I think the other cultural challenge that the Seahawks defense is experiencing is the Bobby Wagner thing where he's your senior veteran leader who everyone looks up to. But if Griff and I are seeing on the tape the the issues that he's creating for the defense just with how he plays his coverage and his lack of sideline to sideline range and, and all this stuff, you damn know well that the players are too. And so how would you broach that? It's definitely a, an interesting thing. And yeah, I mean, Griff, what, what are your thoughts on uh, Pete Carroll's Seattle Sports Monday? Um when I when I saw the uh, when I saw it, the tweets transcribing what he said and like the commentary given by the I was like oh wow like that maybe is, that doesn't sound good like either either like he's laying the hammer down which you know if that can be a you can see that as a positive like he's you know it's tough love now or maybe you know he's feeling the pressure so yeah he's he's scapegoating players or something instead of you know admitting he's not coaching maybe not coaching them well maybe that's indicative of like you know yeah him feeling the pressure so that i wanted to go and watch watch it and 
it was a total like he even kind of called them out with compassion almost and like you said the the, the context of the question it was like it was assumed who did it and he then he went on to say like we can do that stuff we just gave it to them like we can we got to get these guys ready and stuff like that so like regarding the culture and everything you know i always wonder like what, what what's the chicken what's the egg you know like w- losing begets begets bad vibes and then bad vibes can reinforce worse play and worse play can reinforce you know further bad vibes winning can give you good vibes and stuff so like what what is really the source issue um and and you know so really we don't we don't know it's uh as far as what what the source of it is i mean ultimately like i think the young guys are young enough and green-eyed enough that they're just hungry so like i don't think that's too much of a problem there um the older vets know that like they're still I mean, they still have a lot of money that, that they're they're potentially risking if they rock the boat too much. So, I mean, if Jamal's causing problems in that sense, like, I mean, there's a lot of money that he could be looking at saying goodbye to if he gets cut. Now, he's, he'll still get a nice severance severance package yeah. if he does. But, like, like Quadre Diggs is heading into the last year of his deal. And, like, I imagine, I imagine he would try to be at least not a negative voice, try to be a positive if he's not going to outwardly be a positive voice, I don't, I don't see how it benefits him because if he gets cut outright and, and doesn't even, if he doesn't, if he gets cut outright on the open market at his age, he's not looking at a, a good chunk of change. If, if he, if he rocks the boat too much, you know, that might hurt him in terms of, you know, a potential restructure that would be offered him. Um, otherwise, I mean, he probably wants to collect all $21 million of his 2024 cap hit. Um, and like he's still a good safety and see he knows and i'm sure the team knows that he's taking care of business i mean a lot of people can't look past the uh can't look past the missed tackles right now and yeah maybe you want to see more effort sure maybe he can't make those plays anymore but like my thing there is he's missed a lot of tackles in his career as a seahawk trying to make tackles in those positions are really awkward anyway earl thomas missed a lot of those the primary problem is whoever gave up the reception to begin with. He's not the one giving up those receptions. Yeah. So, like, I'm not I'm not too concerned with Diggs's play, but like, I don't see how it benefits him to be like. So, what you lost? You lost a 33 year old player on the last year of his deal. From the team, could just be like, we'll get rid of him. So, I don't know if he's really causing issues. Beyond that, you know, the guys that are kind of in that in between stage, like say Jordan Brooks or something. Well, did you say 33 year old Griff? How old is he? He's only, you know, he turns thirty-one in January. Oh my bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, still, I mean, he'll be he'll be thirty-one if he's cut. You know, thirty-one-year-old safeties don't get a lot of money on the free market, especially the safety position. No. Um, so I don't know, man. Like, if if Jordan Brooks is raising issues, I would imagine he's doing so in a constructive manner because he cares. He also has a contract. You know, he's fighting for. He probably wants to stick around. And he wants to maximize his contract value. So I just, I don't, I never know how to view that stuff. So that's I, me basically well, saying, I don't know. I'd say also the, the there isn't a, a position on defense which is going to look worse than the deep safety in a struggling defense. Like the deep safety needs people to play well around them for them to be able to make their best plays. Right. Because he, otherwise, he... otherwise, as you say, the ball gets caught in more space, then you have a tougher tackle. Otherwise, the run pops out and you've got a one-on-one in space against the running back who has basically a two-way go because the backside corner's not even pursuing properly. 
you know, right. you get all types of bad things happen on bad defenses and the post safety or the deep safety is often the guy uh, who gets impacted by that. So, right. Like yeah. when, 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 when Quandre Dig made all those plays in the alley in 2021, they had good run defense in 2021. The entire defense strung those plays out. Didn't give the running back momentum. He's catching him when he's not even able to cut up field yet. You know what I mean? Like the spacing is, is everything is perfect. He's got different, he's got guys to leverage the ball with. He doesn't have guys to leverage the ball with right now because the run defense is failing, especially on the edge. He especially didn't have that last year in 2022. So, and and then like the missed tackle, like I don't think he's worse at tackling now. It's just there are more scenarios where he does miss tackles cropping up that are out of his control. Um, so I don't think he's intrinsically regressed at tackling, which is to say maybe he wasn't ever super good at open field tackling. Just those scenarios weren't as frequent in the past. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Duck on Quack asked, um, oh no, du not Duck on Quack, Photo Motion asked, what does base defense look like? Is it not whatever they use the most? So Photo Motion, I, that is obviously an area where there's going to be confusion, isn't there? Um, I've got you, Griff. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you'll hear people say base defense because it's what they use the most, and sometimes you'll hear them say it's base because it's their technically their base personnel. So Seattle's base personnel is the 3-4, so when they're in that look, they end up with three interior big guys and then four linebackers, two of them edge linebackers and then two of them off-ball inside backers. Seattle doesn't use that base set often at all. Their, their most used personnel is technically a 2-4-5 where it looks like a 4-2-5 or sometimes like a 4-3. Um, you have two interior defensive linemen, you have two outside backers on either edge and your two off-ball inside backers. And then whoever the fifth DB is, it could be Jamal Adams as like a big nickel type with Julian Love playing as the strong safety, or it could be Devin Witherspoon as the nickel. Um, and then Jamal Adams plays the strong safety and then Trey Brown's coming at left corner. So yeah, apologies for the confusion there. Duck on Quack, Griff. Thank you so much for the donation, Duck on Quack. Thank you, um, sir. And, and also for helping in the chat. With the issues Bobby Wagner's having in coverage, wouldn't it be better to play Devin Bush for the sake of coverage assignment, Griff? Well, the problem I have, there, there's a couple of issues. One, it's like the the statement that would be benching Bobby probably wouldn't go over well, locker room wise, and probably he wouldn't like it, you know. Uh, but then, secondly, there's the whole green dot thing because only one guy can have the mic in their in their helmet, and because Bobby's got the mic in his helmet, he has to be on the field for 100 percent of downs. So. Um, I mean, if, if we were God emperors of the universe, it would make sense to give that to Diggs, so that they can play around with the linebacker spots as they wish. Um, and cause it really, is just relaying it to the huddle. The, the post snap duties would be the same otherwise, cause the mic has a job or our, um, our post call duties. So like, it's not just the mic telling, making adjustments post snap, every player on the defense has a responsibility to communicate things. The mic will each safety, every, everybody. Um, so it's just relaying the call, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a symbol, a status symbol to be the one to relay the call in the huddle. And so, yeah, man, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I would be interested if our off season plans enacted and Bobby Wagner is the guy who is, is gone. Um, well, he's on a one year deal, isn't he? 
I would be interested in seeing if the price is right. Devin Bush played the weak side backer spot. Jordan Brooks played the Mike spot because Bush had an impressive preseason. He's picked up the nickel stuff and done fine there when asked to play in that spot. Did it against the Rams um, very briefly. And, you know, he's he looked okay playing weak side. Actually, he didn't. He looked, he looked like a guy who wasn't ready to come into the game when he did play that weak side backer role, but that's not really his fault. Um, I think he could get up to speed. He can run and he can hit. Uh, the, and the preseason stuff was quite exciting. So, yeah, yeah, but the, at this point, and it's kind of the cultural challenge. I don't think, I, I don't think they they're gonna get you know change anything this year. Like, no. it's Bobby do or die. And I think on internally, I think that may create some challenges for them because you know you preach about always compete, and they've obviously got a culture of care and everything, and. Uh, this perception of Bobby Wagner still is like a you know future Hall of Fame great player, rightly so, but you know the tape don't yeah. lie, and it just takes one dude to be annoyed by it. Like Quandre digs every play that's given up by anyone looks annoyed on the tape. Yeah, and he, <laughs> so, he's always been that way too. And but when it's... suddenly that guy starts getting blamed by PFF and getting you know um, massive uh, criticism on Twitter, and then it, and you've lost four games in a row or maybe five games if it gets to that, then it becomes an issue. So Right, right. Yep, definitely. Griff, updated Pro Bowl fan voting. There are three Seahawks who are the top 10 at their positions after last week. I saw that. <laughs> Linebacker Bobby Wagner, ninth overall and fourth in the NFC. Kicker Jason Myers, ninth overall, fifth in the A NFC. And special teamer Nick Bellore, seventh overall, fourth in the NFC. Do you have see, any thoughts on that? See, this is why democracy was a mistake, and we should reinstitute monarchies and, and autocratic dictatorships Absolutely. so that the right guys are getting to the Pro Bowl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's basically all there is to be said on that. Yeah. Uh, man. Brilliant. See, I, I'm I'm still I'm still optimistic that they can have a good game against the Eagles, and then and then bang out three more good games. Um, I want them. I I really want them to finish ten and seven. Like I'm really gunning for that. You do? I, yeah, yeah. I want them to get it, and I want them to win a wild card game. That's a shocker. I I thought you'd want them to lose out and and not be in the playoffs. I also think it's the best thing for them for 2024 sake too. Yes, yeah, so you're not uh, your point being there. Also, you're not a tank for draft position. Um, if they, if if you know the, uh, if they if they like just fall apart, if they fall apart, then there's and you, if this team falls apart completely moving forward, then th that's not worth the the increased draft position because then that rookie's coming into like a shit show. That's coming a, into a team that doesn't belong and doesn't believe in Pete anymore. Here, Pete. Here's a question. Yeah. What point would you get rid of Pete Carroll? I would get rid of Pete if um, I don't really, there's nothing that can really, that said what I just said, in spite of what I just said, there's nothing that can happen this year that would make me get rid of Pete Carroll unless they got like blown out the final three games, especially like if, if, if they didn't just lose them, but got like, blown out or lost by an average and players were like just straight you could just see a lot of quit on the tape yeah, yeah. yeah. and if the players start like in the media like man this you know like the what we saw out of denver last year from the players in the media 
you know, like a locker room interview. So if it was stuff like that, it'd be like, all right, well, you know, I still think Pete's a good coach, but clearly it's just not working right now. Then okay. But barring that, which I don't see happening, I think they win the final three games anyway. I think they probably in all likelihood end nine and eight, um, maybe eight and nine. But that said, it would it would it would require further regression next year to make me think moving on from Pete is worth it. I think the best answer for all of this is the most boring answer. I'm not saying that alternative our alternative, you know, coaching staff wouldn't work. I'm just saying I think the likeliest outcome of them being good in 2024 and 2025 comes from them just making the minor tweaks, the obvious minor tweaks that need to be made and bank on positive regression from the O-line and keep it moving. And I really think that's what needs to happen. Um, and that's the boring answer. It's, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to overreact to this. Oops, sorry. I don't want to overreact to what's happened the last month. Um, I understand people that aren't happy with it, of course. I'm equally unhappy. I just think, you know, what, what's the likeliest solution? I think the likeliest solution is the most boring conservative answer. Um, that assumes they end the season with an ounce of competence. So, yeah, it's a huge, if, huge remaining four games of the season, not just right. for making the playoffs, but really for the future of the franchise. Because ahead of this tough stretch that we've just seen, where you know they have to go to the the Cowboys, the the forty nine, uh, the Rams, the forty niners, who I mean, and the forty niners and some other team ahead. Of, well, the Eagles now ahead of that stretch. I said we'll find out a lot about this team, who they are, um, whether they can correct the issues. And they haven't really corrected the issues, although the offense possibly against the Cowboys. But I think certain issues have got worse or made themselves more apparent. Um, and so I, it would be nice if they could kind of correct, win some games. I mean, it was funny on the radio, uh, so, uh, Mike Solk asked Pete Carroll if he'd ever lost um, four games in a row. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it might have happened in... Uh, in New York, um, but Salt kind of uh, didn't really pick up on that. But um, obviously, I, I always mention it. Dan Marino fake spike game uh, started that, but yeah, I, I, your answer is similar to mine, Chocker, that we are fairly aligned on that. Where that, I mean, they're still playing hard football out there. I, I think there are some problems which will become an issue, which happens when you lose games. Problems will become bigger issues if they keep losing, and if they keep losing and they do it in a really bad fashion, I, you know, any coach will will be under pressure. But I really liked. Uh, I mean, you spoke about it at the start of the show, but that twenty ten since twenty ten statistic for Pete Carroll Griff about coaching losses. Yeah. What 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 what, what is that? Because it's a good oh, one, and I can't remember it off the top. No, of the, the Seahawks prior to this four game losing streak were the sole remaining team to not have a single four game uh losing streak and i think it was the no surprise i think the steelers and the and the patriots who only had one apiece the seahawks had zero and now the seahawks have joined those two teams it, it was on the the broadcast um but th that's also why like i'm still confident like pete carroll doesn't lose football games that that, that much like he he gets his teams back on track that's so, why this is so i think that's also obviously, but that's why this is so scary um, because it's a it's new territory, and that's why he looks so pressed and um, is feeling yeah. it. Um, 
Right. He gets them back on track. And see, my thing is that I still think that this current roster has more potential on it than any of the previous rosters. So if you can harness what you can harness, make the tweaks, get back on track, so to speak, then I think you'll enjoy the benefits of the potential ceiling and, that is on the team right now. And that's why people are frustrated because they feel the it should the, the direction should be going in the opposite way. But it's never a linear curve. This might be the dip they need before uh, exactly. before going up. Um, so in his 2010 book, Win Forever, Pete Carroll told us, as head coach, I set the vision and philosophy, but it is the coordinators and other coaches who are charged with implementing it on the ground with the players every day. You can teach people how to coach football and the nuances of the game. It is no secret, after all, that I have basically been running the same defense I learned from Monte Kiffin in the 1970s. Blah, blah, blah. Specific players aren't what made all those USC victories, and they aren't necessarily what are going to power the Seahawks. Perhaps the most powerful weapon in the win forever philosophy is the drive to be constantly looking for ways to improve. That mentality makes a huge difference when I'm looking to hire coaches for my staff. So a, a kind of a, a good quote, I think, to show how he, he, he really is kind of, he delegates, he lets coaches do their stuff, but then when mistakes happen... Um, they happen, um, and he has to kind of step in. And I mean, Ken Norton Jr., the the bear front thing, when when he leaned so much into the bear, Picao attributed that to, that to him. Um, the types of coverages they started running, I'm sure Picao had a say on that. Um, but you know, Ken Norton had been exposed to that in Oakland, and obviously, Nat, they kind of leaned more into that with what Clint Hurt brought to the defense. Um, I think offensively has been such a great example, though, Griff, of the, you know, his delegation and how in how extremely pass-heavy they've been. Um, right. And, you know, when the run game's been inefficient, which it has for much of the season, just straight up, like, ditching it and replacing that with passes. Yeah. No, I'm, I, th I think, uh, I mean, the... I think the how much the offense has changed is demonstrative of, of what he's talking about, how he, you know, he, he delegates, he lets the coordinators implement, he lets them have a vision. And I think he's still very much part of that vision and implementing it. It's not hands off, but, um, you know, it's, I, 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 I just see so much as a uh, affirmation of his entire outlook. I mean, we, we, this is the most dire I think we have ever been about Pete Carroll, and we're talking about a six and seven team. So that's not to say it's acceptable or good enough, but like that's just it's six and seven. We're not talking about a disaster class season here that can still get into the playoffs, that can still end the year with double digit wins if they get their act together, which I hope everyone agrees is possible because there is a lot of potential here. Um, 10 and 7 would be an improvement off of last year, which last year was, you know, greatly exceeded everyone's expectations. And in my view, is still serving as the basis for my general idea of like Pete has earned uh, some leeway here because like everyone assumed, every everyone, many people assumed that a substantial portion of his success was due to the Legion of Boom. The Legion of Boom falls apart. They still win 10 games a year anyway. And then they lose Russell Wilson. And they say, well, it's because of Russell Wilson. And of course, Russell Wilson was a good quarterback for them. They lose Russell Wilson, and then they win nine games. And had they not fired Ken Norton Jr., they probably won 12 games last year. Um, 
or at least 11. So like this, there, there's just, I just think there's so much still working for them and on both sides of the ball. And it's really not, it doesn't take that much to kind of get back on track and be what they can be. I really believe that. So, um, I mean, here, here's another way of looking at it. People think that they're not being maximized right now. And the question is, can Pete maximize a group? What, what was last year then? If people had such low expectations, was that not maximization? What was the post-Legion of Boom window? If if you, if everyone thought that roster was so bad, then how on earth do you how on earth do you explain winning ten, then eleven, then twelve games in a row after the Legion of Boom fell apart up until his quarterback gets hurt? And they still win seven games, and then their their Pythagorean win was still like nine and a half games that year in twenty twenty one. So it's not like that was a terrible team either, as seven and ten teams go. So like, if 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 you don't believe Pete can maximize this group next year, why do you think that? Because what was then 2018, 19, and 20, was that not maximization? What was the 9 and 8 season last year? Was that not maximization? I'd argue it wasn't maximization. They should have been way better than that. That was because my preseason expectations were higher than most people's. Well, I'd, but, I'd be interested in the Venn diagram of people who, who you know, don't believe Pete can do that. Uh, and how that combines with people who aren't really convinced about Geno Smith, you know, I imagine the the, the quarterback, uh, the, the views of the quarterback, uh, kind of influencing this too. Yeah, true, true. So, all, all right, right. Well, Griff, it's been great having you back. Griff, chat is gonna go because, like he said, he has his he has he has a life. Um, <laughs> I'm going to continue with an offense, uh, why the offense is stalling. But Griff, absolutely brilliant having you back. All right, Maddie, I loved chatting with you. Hopefully we'll get Ty in here. It'll be three of us again, hopefully next Monday. Um, in the meantime, good luck with the offense. And chat, be very nice to Maddie. Bye. They're always nice to me. Good, they better be. Otherwise, Maddie will ban you. He will ban you. No, they know. They know. Yeah. Rod right. Manhammer found that out yesterday. I don't think that was his actual name. All right. Peace out. See you, Griff. Much love. Bye. So as I said, we're going to talk about how the offense stalls. Oh, oh but before that, let me catch up with the chat. Um, yeah, Griff's uh, political and historical stuff, OG3, is always great, isn't it? But I can't um and, and Jack, you're impressed that I read Pete Carroll's book. Hey, that's my job. I <laughs> I have to be familiar with it. It's quite a good read though, like with um with my coaching stuff. It's good. Though it is funny how a lot of coaches their their like coaching system, their philosophy is just an upside down pyramid scheme. <laughs> um Taylor saying, I said it on Sunday, I think Pete Carroll's loyal to his staff to a fault. I mean, yes and no, Taylor. I mean, I was surprised, and I know Griff was, when he fired Ken Norton Jr., and especially the way he did, you know, the way they finished that season, they looked really, really solid, didn't they? Um, uh, they had that Arizona Cardinals game. It looked like they'd found something that worked. And then, yeah. And I know you could tell that that was a tough decision for Pete, just the way he spoke about it. Kerry, uh, we looked at the the playoff odds yesterday. 
they they have a 21% chance per the New York Times. Uh, if they win out, they have a 99% chance. That's because the Rams and the Packers hold... Well, the Rams had the head-to-head tiebreaker over the Seahawks, and then the Green Bay Packers have will have won, uh, you know, if they win enough games to make the playoffs, they'll have won more in-conference NFC games than the Seahawks. So they basically need the Vikings to lose, uh, the Rams or the Packers to lose, and they need to win out. Which, you know, <laughs> there is a chance, there's a 21% chance per the New York Times. Of course, other teams may lose more than one game. Then nine and eight would do it, but really, it feels like ten and seven, doesn't it? I mean, nine and eight's a joke, especially when you've you know got those two tiebreakers against you. Um, Jack asking, I want to know why you think the offensive line's underperforming. Is it just talent? Is Charles Cross underperforming because of the competition he's against, or is it his toes, sophomore slump? Uh, so on the offensive line, Jack, I think they've been put in some poor situations. Uh, you know, like third and longs where teams know that they're passing, clear passing downs. Uh, you know, could also be that that there's a penalty as well. It, it, you know, you don't always get in third and long because your first two plays are bad. It could be bad because of uh, you know being put in behind the chains by a penalty. I think scheme-wise, for whatever reason, they haven't been able to find a run concept that they can rely on, which the offensive line can hit. Um, and then they seem to have an issue with how they handle interior offensive line rush games. So I'm not sure why that is. But it's kind of carried over. It's not, And, and when you have nine different starting combinations, that might be part of it. Uh, when you're in third and longs, that's when those really hit because they take some time to develop, don't they? Uh, but it's not just Anthony Bradford being a rookie fourth-round pick. You know, it's happened to Damien Lewis. It's happened to Evan Brown. There's always a chance. There's always a chance, chat. Right, so what what we're looking at is how the offense is struggling. Um now, let me just make sure I've got everything. So, the offense on first and second downs on the season is seventh in EPA per play, which is absolutely solid, isn't it? However, <laughs> the offense and, and 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 what you might also think of as well in this situation is is quarters, and so this is. For the first quarter, they're seventh in EPA per play, which is, if you think about the opening script, which Shane Waldron uses, he was pressed by uh, Greg Bell on how long the opening script lasts. He didn't say. It's around 15 plays, give or take. Now, there's things which can knock you off your opening script. Then there's also things which can, you know, make your opening script last a bit longer so you don't get the the right amount of situations that you were looking for. But go give or take 15 plays or... Uh, say, you know, how we can look at it is just look at the first quarter. So the offense on uh, first and second down in the first quarter is seventh in EPA per play. Um, and, and and the opening script, if you remember games like the Bengals, where, oh my gosh, the opening drives perfection. They march down the field and they score a touchdown. Even the Cowboys game, they score an opening drive touchdown. 
Uh, we had one against the 49ers too, didn't we? They've been pretty hot on on and, and looked really polished with how they've done it, and then they kind of fall apart. So the data kind of backs that up too. Uh, so, so first quarter, first and second down, seventh in EPA per play. Uh, first and second down in, you know, uh, second, third, fourth, and overtime, Seattle's actually fifth in EPA per play on offense. How, uh, however, what's interesting is, as, as this chart shows, what's interesting, oh my gosh, on third down in the first quarter, Seattle is the best EPA play team in the league on third and fourth down. Remarkable stuff. But <laughs> the issue really in the second, third, fourth, and fifth quarter is teams on third down and fourth down work out how Seattle's doing stuff, and they are the worst team in the league on third and fourth down in the second, third, fourth, and fifth quarters, which is just ridiculous, isn't it? Now, obviously on the season, Seattle's third down percentage has been a joke overall. Uh, they're currently 26th in the league, converting just 33.33% of their third downs. But this kind of issue of them being good in the first quarter on, uh, on third and fourth down, uh, you know, the best EPA per play in the league, but when it comes to the second, third, fourth, and overtime, being the worst team in the league, EPA per play-wise, is is yikes. As uh, Jackson Bevins' field goals pointed out, Seattle has been, in the first quarter, the third best team EPA per play-wise. And in the second, third, fourth, and overtime, they've been the 20th best uh, team in EPA per play-wise. But the issue really is a third down thing, or and fourth down potentially too. Duck on crack, I'll answer that question in a second. So why is third down, as a game goes on, an issue for this offense? Well, as Griff points out, they have one of the worst pass pro offensive lines in the league, and he thinks the dam breaks as pass rush plans evolves and defensive lines exploit matchups. I think teams kind of get a sense of how Seattle is going to attack them. Um... I think they get more confident in ramping pressure up. I think the offensive line, you know, can get away with some stuff, but not the whole time. Um, and, and I think, you know, the offensive line can only withstand so much pressure of being in a clear passing situation before they kind of expire, they get exploited, and, and they can't really cover up for that too much. Griff also points out the poor receiver coaching details. Other than the Dallas game, there's been real issues with the receiver spacing, the type of routes they're given, uh, the type of concepts they're running. What I mean by that is they are being asked to win an isolation ball. It's all stuff I've talked about at seahawksontape.com where how they kind of corrected it against Dallas, but how it plagued them for most of the season. You know, guys running into each other, guys not being given motion at the snap to, to help them separate, uh, poor execution of rub routes designed to try and separate against tight man coverage. 
And when you get receivers not getting open and you get receivers who are tightly covered, that just exacerbates the pass protection and all that stuff because the quarterback has to hold the football or move on to his next read. The ball doesn't come out as fast. Again, the Dallas game stands out because even though Geno Smith was pressured a lot, the ball came out the quickest he's ever thrown it, something like 2.4 seconds. I did a video on Geno Smith on this channel too, so you can check that out. So, Griff credits Shane Waldron for having effective third downs within his opening script. Um, that is part of it, but it also feels like Waldron runs out of bullets, I would say. But the the offensive line has been a big problem this year. Now, Duck on Quack, you ask, what's the purpose of an opening script? Is the script just to probe the defense, the search for the looks they want to, will receive through the game, or just plays practiced? It's a combination of all those things. Now, I, you know, if I'd been prepared, I'd have a quote from like one of the great play callers of what they look to do in their opening script. But basically, the offense is gathering intelligence on how the defense is going to play certain formations, certain looks. But the offense also, as Kerry points out, they'll have studied film and looked at the tendencies of their opponent. And the offense will have like some plays they feel really good about running that week. And they will then put them into the game plan early to, to exploit a tendency they know they're going to get. It's like the opening few moves of a chess match where they're kind of set. They could be setting up looks down the line as well on offense of, Hey, we're going to show them this early in the game. And then we know in the second half where some teams will have a second half opening script as well. But, um, we know in the second half that we can then adjust off of that based on how they play it. But it's generally stuff they feel really good about um, based off all their tendencies. Sometimes it's the new plays and then they'll kind of, and some of their new fancy stuff and then they'll settle down into other things based off what they've seen, the kind of information they've gathered. Or it's not really information gathered, more so it's like stuff that they've had confirmed. So I hope that kind of answers your question. Uh, Jordan saying a defense is less likely to run stunts or pass rush games at the beginning of the games. Uh, possibly Jordan. I wouldn't say so, but I, I would, I would guess, you know, your first few pass rush opportunities, maybe you just let them rush. You see how they're setting the protection, the pass pro, and then you go, okay, well, they did this on this play. So we're going to run this type of pass rush game to attack them more. And, and the defense learns from the opening drives too, doesn't it? And that's kind of what I mean by once that opening script's over, defenses go, okay, well, they're doing this, this, and this. They're, that guy's playing with this technique versus me. I'm going to now adjust. Or on this play, they called in this type of pass protection scheme. So what we're going to do to counter that is we're going to run this pass rush game in this, if we get this situation again. So that's kind of what being out-adjusted looks like. But I think it's also a bit of a talent problem for them. Um, and it, I mean, these numbers are just, it's absolutely stark, isn't it? The the fact that it's really the third and fourth downs of the rest of the game after the first quarter that have been such a problem for Seattle. Uh, interesting kind of further isolating the third down issues to to that period. So hopefully they can kind of correct that. It's something I kind of wanted to talk with Griff about, but I felt we... Uh, 
we we kind of had to catch up with Griff, didn't we? We had to ask him uh, how he felt about the rest of the team. Um, Seattle has the fourth best passing offense on first and second down in the entire um, NFL via um, EPA per play. It's just those third downs. Now, the other problem that they've had is I think they really lack a a go-to run concept. Like, I don't think they know what their best run concept is. Run game-wise, they haven't done it very often. Um, they're kind of middle of the pack from an efficiency standpoint. Uh, like the median, slightly below the median for the NFL. But I think they go away from the run when they feel like they're not getting the efficiency out of it. Uh, have you got any questions for me in the chat? Or is there any any offensive uh, tape you want to watch? I mean, Drew Locke did fine. He he did okay, but it's uh, yeah. It would be nice if Geno Smith was back. I would say. Taylor, I want to know why we haven't seen Kenny McIntosh yet. Good question. So that's a case of he just hasn't quite had the opportunity to get in because they had DJ Dallas, right? And DJ Dallas was more relied upon to be the passing down back with the pass protection pickups and all that sort of stuff. McIntosh is a rookie. I don't know how well he's picked that all up, but Dallas would be ahead of him there. And then they'd have Charbonnet to pound pound him away at um, defenses, right? Um, and then it's kind of, well, if you're not one of the two starting backs and obviously Walker's back in the picture now. So what, one of the three starting backs, how do we get you in on special teams? And Dallas is the returner. So it's not going to be like that. Uh, D. Eskridge came back. He's an established returner, but also Macintosh, you know, I don't want to, it's overly reductive to just talk about his relatively slow 40 time for six speed, but Ultimately, on special teams, you need guys who can run and hit. Um, and he's like a running back build, so he's not that big. And he's not that fast. You know, he's not one of the fast players. So he's not like a linebacker size. And he's not. Um, he's a fairly small back for himself as well. And then he's not like a run and hitter. And, and they probably have someone who's ahead of him anyway in, in that respect. So it's very difficult for him to factor in, even though, you know, Pete Carroll spoke in about trying to get him more involved. John asking, do they run different runs depending on if Kenneth Walker or Zach Charbonneau are in? Um, well, I know that Walker really likes counter, and they've spoke about that before, but I haven't noticed them like really changing it based on the running back. But they obviously call plays they feel good about for each player, but I haven't noticed a massive difference. Uh, Vince, you're saying, I'm just curious how uh, we attack their zone coverage compared to Kyle Shanahan versus the Seahawks. Well, Vince, that's where it's kind of Griff's point earlier in the, the night. It's harder to attack zone coverage, and it's why it's so annoying watching the, the 49ers because it reminds me uh, quite a bit of how the Seahawks used to play back when they were really, really good on defense. You, you, 
you have less time to get downfield on zone coverage. And so their defenders have a, a quicker response to drop to their landmark and then come down to the check down. So the check down becomes easier to cover. And so you're less likely to be stacked in your zones, uh, like high load in your zones. So it was harder for Seattle to attack the zone coverage. A lot of it was kind of sideline ISO shots, um, which you kind of end up having to do against these types of teams. Like if they had the protection, you could more reliably do what Shanahan did to the Seahawks. Shanahan's able to put five guys out into the pattern, you know, how he dresses that up is quite clever with, I mean, his run game's a threat, but also doing it from under center looks, starting running back in the, out in the backfield and then uh, pushing him out. Um, what happened to those great runs from Charbonnet early in the game, asked Kerry. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. Brandon, what did KJ Wright have to say? Do you just mean his post-game comments? Because I saw some of them. What I would say on, on uh, KJ Wright is... He has a, uh, you know, he's obviously been teammates with some of the people on the Seahawks, uh, in the Seahawks uh, defense a bit longer than he has with some of the others. And his analysis is cool that he's being very open and, and blunt with his analysis and uh, outspoken with his football analysis. But when certain guys are mentioned and then others aren't, um, when you think uh, the others should probably get mentioned too, that to me, um, you just sort of have to note that down and recognize that. That's just my opinion. OG3, what's the most Griff and I have disagreed about a Seahawks player? Hmm. OG3, I tend to just be, um, I tend to, I don't know. The most Griffin I've disagreed was on is how we started uh, talking was uh, on Tom Cable, where we, we've spoke about this on the podcast before, but we were essentially agreeing with each other, but I was coming at it from a, the, the personnel was bad and Griff was saying how Cable's not doing well and we're kind of both right. Um, we disagreed on a player in our pre-draft stuff, did we, Taylor? Yeah, we might have... We might have... Um, Thule... Uh... Tuli uh, Tupelotu, is that is that how you pronounce his name? I think we disagreed on him, kind of, because I, I didn't really see what his fit would be. But Griff is, I'll always defer to Griff on defensive front players, particularly the pass rush types. I mean, he he's doing really well this year, isn't he? He's got four sacks. Um, but it was more, I just didn't see his how he'd fit in Seattle's defense. Um, or, But, I mean... How are the Chargers using him? 
Yeah. Yeah. So tomorrow, chat, I have a, a really exciting preview of the Philadelphia Eagles game with uh, Benjamin Solak of the Ringer NFL and Philly Special. Must win game for Seattle, isn't it? It absolutely is a must win game. We'll also have a Seahawks injury report to look at where, I mean, I'm hoping Tino Smith is back. I'm hoping Devin with the spoon can play because ultimately Seattle needs their best players. They they need their best players, especially at very important positions. And yeah. Noigash, Derek Hall isn't terrible. Remember how Maffe struggled? Hall hasn't struggled really like that. He's done absolutely fine. Thank you, Taylor. Appreciate that on the guests. Yeah. Well, also keep your eyes peeled uh, for a video breakdown. Again, let me know who you want to see the breakdown on. I've tried, to, uh, as I always say, I tried to keep these video breakdowns positive, but I don't... Um, yeah, it's a bit of a tough one this week. So if there's like a topic that you're interested in, let me know. But that will be coming out probably on Friday. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, it was really fun having Griffin back. Please do like the video. Uh, comment down below. Uh, appreciate your continued support. Thank you very much, Duck on Quack, for the donation tonight. Oh my gosh, another donation. Wow, thank you, Duck on Quack, just as I was thanking you. Um, appreciate your support. Um, you're welcome. Uh, we do we do try to stay level-headed. Um, being on my own, it was good hearing from Griff, wasn't it? Because being on my own uh, and just talking and talking and talking, I don't want to be sensationalist, but it does kind of happen. Thank you, everybody. Very, very kind. Um, and I don't know, I saw Henry in here earlier. Henry, congratulations on uh, on Milan uh, making it. It's unfortunate that Paris Saint-Germain didn't um, completely cock it up. Um, it was very sad. Oh, well. I'm not over that. I, I, I was protecting myself very early from that situation by just forgetting it happened. And now I've reminded myself, so that's great. Vince, yeah, I could do punter analysis on Michael Dixon. Could put on an Australian accent. Some people say that I, um, I've had it. People say I sound Australian, and then someone was saying I sounded Mexican. So, yeah, good for you. All right, thank you, everyone. Have a see you, see you tomorrow night with uh, Ben Solak.